gather around the lamp and Aston Villa podcast. If at first you don't succeed, come back next year and try again. Aston Villa celebrates the pleasure of promotion to the Premier League. It's a Wednesday and that means it's a brand new recording of the Gather Around the Lamp podcast by underagaslitlamp.com. I'm Regan, you can find me on Twitter at FindFoy and I'm joined by Mark. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Mark Jerobi here. You can find me on Twitter at VillamarkPGH. Got a little bit to talk about about the Crystal Palace game, but we got really, really important stuff to talk about first, Regan. Yeah, I mean, we're going to start this week's podcast by talking about the Aston Villa women. Um, it's a huge deal there, coming back to Villa Park this Sunday at 12pm to face off against Blackburn Rovers. Um, and prior to this game, we managed to catch up with Amy West. Uh, we got her thoughts on the upcoming season. Um, obviously, it's already started, but we, we we spoke to her about the season ahead, um, and she spoke, you know, pretty candidly about her new teammates like Emma Follis and Marissa Ewers, and Melissa Johnson, um, uh, some of the changes that were made over the summer, and the side's quest or push for promotion to the Women's Super League this season. Um, West was pretty excited about the fact that they were returning to Villa Park as a childhood Villa fan. And she said that Villa Park is a beautiful stadium and the pitch is like a carpet. It's something that you just can't help being excited for as an Aston Villa fan. We have a job to do and we'll make sure we put in a great performance out there on the pitch. Yeah, and you love to hear that from any player, especially an Aston Villa women's player. And and, and Amy West knows what it's about. You know, she, she knows how to play the game. We've seen a little bit of it so far this, in this short season. But just imagine playing at Villa Park, especially, you know, being a Villa supporter. It's the same kind of terms. And, and Jack and whatnot, but I mean, think about that. I mean, how how would how do you think you'd feel like being you know in a side and all of a sudden you know I mean you're just playing a bold mirror in other places and that's nice and everything, but actually playing for the pinnacle of the club that you know that you're under in, in Villa Park. I think that's an amazing thing. I really do. Yeah, it's it's been to be a great experience, and it's something that will hold, especially some of the younger players, in a, in a good stead going forwards. Um, but but at the same time, you know it. It allows them to get a crowd that they 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 can't physically get a bold mid because of obviously the capacity restrictions. Um, in January against Leicester City, they they uh, broke records with their attendance, and I think they're pretty pretty certain to uh, break it again against uh, Blackburn on Sunday. Yeah, that would be awesome. I also just saw a tweet right before we started recording that if you actually if you're a season ticket holder and you actually want to get uh, one of the free tickets that you get for the game on Sunday, you have the deadline of Friday to do that. So anyone out there who's thinking about maybe going and see the women's team, and especially if you want to go visit Park on a Sunday with the men's, you know, being out for international duty, you have until Friday to do that. I strongly urge you to do it. I said in the last podcast, I think it's a beautiful thing that the women's side's playing at Villa Park, and you know, go out and support them. They deserve it. They're Villa too. Yeah. And I mean, the women's side have received uh, some some big investment and some big improvements from the club. Um, and you know, a- Amy Westman, she spoke to us, seemed really appreciative of the of the changes. She um, she actually said that this season we've had some tremendous backing from the club, which has provided us with more resources and facilities to help us perform at our best and reach our collective goal. We really we've really welcomed the change, and we appreciate it. Um, you know that, that's something great. At the start of, uh, well, towards the tail end of last season, Christian Perslow said that he wanted to improve the investment for the women's side, and 
you know, in football, you can't always trust your CEOs. You know, we we had Keith Wyness as a CEO for God's sake. Um, so you know, people thought it was it was more of a you know a duff promise, but you know, he's kept his word, and there has been more investment in the in the ladies' team. Um, but West also spoke about you know some of the new signings, some of the new teammates, um, and about hitting the ground running with two back to back wins. Um, and she's she's pretty certain that if this squad can all pull in the right direction, that promotion is definitely achievable. Yeah, and it's good to hear Wes talk about that kind of thing. That that that's ultimately what the goal is. I mean, I don't I don't think there was ever a doubt what the goal was. I think it's always been to be promoted. But you know, it's nice to hear her talk positively about the new signings that come in. You know, said that they all kicked off really well in previous games so far up to this young season and whatnot. Um, I, I would like to touch on the financial aspect you were talking about with Christian Perslow. I think that's a mighty big thing for Perslow to say that he did want to invest in the women's side of Aston Villa, and then he went and actually made sure that that happened. Uh, that's a that's a really nice thing for players that are, the new players not only coming in but also the players that have been around the setup for a while for the Aston Villa women and you know they're going to see the improvements and they're only going to benefit from that so my tip of the hat to Christian Perslow I, th- I think that's a really awesome thing and he, he wants to make sure that they're be, being taken care of to the best of the financial ability you know so I, I think it's going to be a promising season for him I, I don't I know you're pretty much in the same boat there that you know pretty pretty positive going forward here for the Aston Villa women yeah definitely um do you reckon they can make it three wins on the bounce, or do you think they might struggle? I, I don't. I'm not sure. I, I, I see a draw coming. I, I don't know. I, I just think that. Um, yeah, I, I'm thinking a one, one all draw for me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say that they're they're gonna they're gonna play for the for the Villa Park crowd, and I'm gonna say three 0 oh, I love that. That's a, that's a good prediction there. I, I would love to see that honestly. I'll be there, so I'll be I'll be cheering them on. But um, yeah, keep a lookout on our social media channels and on our website. Um, we'll be posting you know the match report. We'll have some thoughts to post after the game, and we'll have the uh, the highlights package uh, probably Monday or Tuesday. Um, but let's let's move on and let's talk about the thing that everybody wants us to talk about, and that's the Crystal Palace game, uh, which for what it's worth wasn't the best in terms of performance for Villa. Yeah, it wasn't. I mean, you know, you're gonna. Everyone wants to talk about the controversy that happened at the end of the contest, and it's it is what it is. But Villa didn't play well, uh, especially the wide men didn't play well at all. I mean, Trezeguet, obviously, you can talk about the game as a whole. You know, the sending off. He, he's got to be better than that for me. Um, you know, if he's already cautioned, he's got to be a little bit more careful in his challenges. That states the obvious. That's been you know said a million times already. Um, but yeah, the, the wingers are starting to be a little bit of a little bit of a concern and we actually uh asked for questions prior to the podcast and we were able to get one from our good friend over at villa on tour mr max stokes himself uh he asked us the question the effectiveness of the wingers on saturday i didn't feel like i noticed them too much do we lack pace in that cutting edge from out wide what do you think about that regan well yeah i actually i actually spoke with uh james rushton from uh 7500 tolt um and we kind of debated about whether something needs to change he was for sticking with wingers and i was Maybe thinking if we have a tactical change at this point in the season, it'll prove to be more worthwhile than if we do it in like January, for example. Um, but yeah, they they weren't really that noticeable. Um, Hotter especially, Hotter did did relatively nothing apart from a few skewed clearances. Um, I thought Trezeguet Trezeguet piqued my interest a couple of times. Um, he was a bit of a live wire out on the left, and there was a couple of times that he won the ball and cut inside, but nothing came from it. 
I thought, you know, if he kept that up, it's something might come off for him. But obviously, he, uh, he ended up being sent off. Um, something that I do want to raise about Trezeguet, though, is that I don't think he was given any or much leeway in terms of his, his cards. Um, I'm not too sure that the first yellow card was a yellow card. Um, and either way, I, I believe he made two or three challenges. But like you see, you see players that make, you know, they're on a yellow card. Philip Billing is the is the prime example. They make a yellow card. They're on a yellow card and they make four or five challenges and they're still on the pitch. Um, I don't think that the two um, or three challenges that Trezeguet made justified his sending off. Um, I believe he should have been given a bit of leeway, and. I think I think really obviously it, it's been a, such a big talking point. It was pretty poor, poor officiating from Kevin Friend. It was. I mean, for me, the cards. I think that's something that Trezeguet is just going to have to. I think they're all these wingers are still adapting to life in the Premier League. Um, you know, we, we've we've talked about it pretty much ad nauseum, especially leading up to the season before ball was even kicked off with some of these signings coming in. That it was going to be a maturation process, and it, it was going to, you know, there's going to be time that needed to be allowed for them to gel together, but also learn as players. And I think Trezeguet is kind of going through that right now. He's trying to learn what he can do, what works, what doesn't, and now he's learning the really, really tough lesson of, you know picking up fouls in the Premier League. Um, yeah, maybe the first, you know, offense for the first yellow was a little soft, but I, I just think you got to be a little smarter in the challenge for his second yellow that ended up for his uh, expulsion. So I think, you know, the wingers definitely need to get better. I think they will get better. I think it's, it's just tough. I mean, you talked about Hada being pretty much invisible out there, and, you know, he was only on the pitch for 60 minutes. The sending off happens. He comes off for Keenan Davis. But in the 60 minutes he was out there, you know, he delivered nine successful passes out of 12. And he only won three of 11 duels. So he wasn't really doing much out there. He was losing on one-on-one situations, and he wasn't passing the ball around as much as we've seen him do previously, especially in the preseason. So, I mean, for me, I think maybe the wingers need shaking up a little bit, but I, I, I don't know. I, I mean, do, do you think you might get a little bit of a shake-up? I think, I think we're forced into the shake-up, and I think, obviously, Al Ghazi will start against West Ham. Um, but, you know, the... Uh, I think I think we've left ourselves a, a little bit, a little bit cut and dry with um, with our attacking options from the wing and up front. I, th- I feel like we we've, we've been a bit naive. I think um, obviously it's really early to say that, but you know we'll we'll revisit this come come January, and you know we we may see that a, a winger's brought in or a striker's brought in, and and then I'll I'll have been proved correct, but. You know, I'm just offering my opinion for, for this for this point as it is. Um, with 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 the second Trezeguet challenge, um, obviously, yeah, he does have to be, you know, a, a lot smarter in his challenge. But you know, he picks he picks Zahar up straight away. They they I guess almost you could consider it a handshake. Um, and you know, Zahar doesn't even like you know complain to the ref, and the ref's just there like, oh, yeah, you no, know, he, he's off the pitch. So really, it was it was a bit of an odd one for me. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, Friend didn't have a, a great refereeing decision, and that that's you know what everyone's been talking about. It's what people are going to talk about the entire international break. It's just the way it goes. You know, Villa did get rubbed the wrong way in that aspect, but it, it brings in the question about Friend and then the multiple you know fouls that Trezeguet might have had, the ones that should have been cards, maybe shouldn't have been cards. You know, but I mean, at the end of the day, you know, talking about the actual performance of the team. 
you know, Palace did well to stop Villa from doing what they were doing, you know, from stopping Villa from doing what they do best, exp- exploiting the areas that they're most comfortable in. Usually it's to the flanks and then crossing the ball in the middle of the area. So, I mean, Palace did well to stop that, and they, they have to, you know, you got to kind of give them the respect where it's due there that, you know, Villa didn't play well, but Palace, you know, when Villa were in spurts, they did look really okay. Villa did, you know, they looked okay in spurts, usually in the beginning of each half, but, you know, Palace did things that, just tactically, it stopped Villa from able to get the ball wide. And then on top of that, your wingers don't have a good day at the office. And then it ends up the entire squad doesn't have a good day at the office. That's pretty much what happened against Palace. Yeah, I mean, you know, with with the wingers not performing, it leaves Wesley on an island all on his own. You know, with, with no tools to make make food with. Uh, no tools to hunt, no tools for nothing. You know, he's, he's out on an island and he is stranded. But, you know, the, the sending off allowed Palace to turn up the heat um, and you know our possession in the game became less and less and that eventually led up to Jordan Ayew scoring against us in the 73rd um, you know it was a goal that could have been avoided Jack and Tyrone attempted to uh, stop Ayew um, but you know Jack attempted the tackle and it almost like bounced off Tyrone and straight back into the path of Andre, uh, Jordan Ayew Um and you know it's back at his feet, and it's a relatively easy goal. You know the build-up to it was was the hard part, but it's almost gifted to you, and it's something that's continuing through Villa's start to the Premier League. Yeah, we're getting these really, really bad bounces of the ball, and um, you know some more traditional purist sports fans will say that you know the bounce of the ball depends on what you're doing out there and you know luck's only determined by how hard you're trying or how well you're doing something and i understand that train of thought i totally do but i mean it's starting to seem like there's some bad breaks going on against villa here um and uh, you know you can't really uh, jack's tracking back defensively you know tyron kind of lets him go in for it um yeah it's just the way it ta- the way he tackled it he's just kind of like chopped at it and it fell right back down the Jordan Ayew and he, he placed in the back of the net and you know like like you said right it, as soon as the sending off happened Villa's possession numbers go down and down and down and down the lowest they hit were 29 percent in a 15 minute period of play so it, it was all palace there as soon as the sending off happened um yeah, I, it's 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 a goal that probably does definitely need uh, cleaned up a little bit and looked at, but you know with Villa going down, you know to ten men and and just the way Palace were playing leading up to that, you know they weathered the storm of Villa early in both halves and you know then they got the extra added bonus of, of Trezeguet going off, so it, another tough break for Villa and you know you got got to make your own luck sometimes, but you know the, the sending off's definitely not going to help matters and then some a, a little bit of you know weaker defending, you know for the IU goal that's not going to help matters either. Yeah, and then, you know, after the goal, Villa tried to fight back and did, in fact, regain the fight for possession. Um, you know, Henry Lansbury entered the field in the 85th minute for a very tired Wesley. Um, and no one really could have foreseen what was about to happen. Uh, but 10 minutes after he came onto the pitch, and undoubtedly the last phase of the game, uh, Jack Grealish bombed forward, gets pushed in the back by Zahar. Uh, keeps his foot in but does stumble a bit and then goes straight into Gary Cahill's knee um, and then he, he goes to the ground but as as he goes to the ground he passes the ball to Lansbury who slams the ball into the back of the net or yeah, so we thought right yeah or so we thought but uh, before we get into or so we thought ideas can we just say like what a gutsy play that is by Jack 
like remove all the pageantry from what happens, like him him getting fouled, fighting through it, you know, running into Cahill and still having the presence of mind to pass the ball. Before anything else, I think that needs to be praised. I don't think it's being talked enough about it, but go ahead, continue. Sorry to cut you off. That's no, fine. Yeah, um, there was that gutsy display from Jack until Kevin Friend decided that, that uh, Jack was actually guilty of simulation in the build-up to the goal, which, of course, ruled the goal out. Um Jack picked up a yellow card for diving, and Villa went home with no points rather than the one that they they deservedly should have had. Um, apparently, Friend blew his whistle to halt the play before Lansbury scores, and obviously that makes it so that VAR couldn't step in. Um, and generally, the the decision landed squarely on the shoulders of Friend, according to how VAR is set up at the moment. Um, but th- there's been so much. You know, there's been so many good takes and so many bad takes over over the last you know couple of days. What what are your thoughts on it? My thoughts on it: it's a bad decision, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and try to explain all the reasons why it's a bad decision. I just think it's a case of poor refereeing. It happens. Um, it's one of those. I think it's one of those things. At least in my mind, the way I'm trying to be a little bit more positive about it. I'm not going to freak out and act like it's it's the end of the world. Yes, it's a bad decision. Yes, it's against Villa. Yes, I'm emotional about it. I was really emotional about it when it when it happened. Um, but you know, taking some time to kind of try to calm down and 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 really uh, digest what what had happened. It's a poor decision. I think VAR doesn't want to stop referees from calling the game how they see it. So that's why VAR didn't step in. It's not fun for me to say that. It it does not it does not fill my heart with joy to say that that's why it didn't shake down the way it did. But through the rules, through things I've gathered, that it fell squarely on Friend's shoulders, and it was up to him to make a decision there. He, he you know he blew the whistle before the goal hit, so you know that's the way it is. It's a it's a it's a shocking decision. It's not his first shocking decision against Aston Villa. Everybody knows that by now. Like I said, there's so many things that have been said about it. It's one of those things where, yeah, getting a point away from home at Selhurst Park would have been fantastic. It wasn't to be. And for, for me, a lot of people don't, don't agree with this, but I think that this decision overshadows the fact that Aston Villa were still poor on the day. And that, that's, that's pretty much it. What about you? How do you feel about the whole thing? Well, you mentioned it. We, we, we spoke about it, and you mentioned that you know it was only called that way because it was Jack. Had it been the other way around and Lansbury was the one that went down in the box and played the ball to Jack for sc- to score, I think the goal would have stood. Uh, I agree with the, the the statement that you made when we were speaking about it, like directly afterwards. Yeah, and I, I even tweeted about it, and I I mean I had a I had a typo in it, so it didn't come off too too well. But you know I might have might have had a, a a beer or two leading up to the game. But you know the fact remains that I do believe that, and I think Jack Grealish and especially even John McGinn at that point were in uh, in Friend's ear a lot during the game, and I'm, I don't think it was malicious enough for Friend to you know see this unfold before his eyes and then be like, oh, I'll, you know, I'll t- tell them for you know being in my ear all game and trying to sway my opinion or telling me you know one thing or the other. Here, I'll give you a card to completely screw you out of a point. I don't think it was anything like that, but the entire de- the entire decisions of this game from a refereeing standpoint, I don't think that should be the standard for the premier league and when you don't come out and publicly say that you know this ref had a had a poor game and you know this is what we're going to do about it you kind of make it seem like to it it comes off to the supporters like you don't care that this guy had had a poor game and you can't be having that so i'm not i'm not calling for discipline i'm not calling for anything like him having to go you know referee a couple games in league two 
anything like that but like something has to be said about it like what are we supposed to do what what if this happens again what if this consistently keeps happening to other teams you know you can't be having that it was just poor i'm not seeing very many people that actually think like oh yeah that's for sure a dive Grealish deserved it goal should have definitely been rolled out like come on face facts you know it's 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 obvious for me yeah the only the only people i've i've seen that think it was a dive were crystal palace fans and that that's only a small majority of them as well yeah, and if you flip the rules, we'd probably say the same thing. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's 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 so subjective. You know, like that's the same thing with VAR. Like everybody, you know, doesn't like VAR until it comes to the rescue, and everyone hates V. You know, the, and the other way around. It's so it's it's really tough, and it's it's bad decision. It's bad luck again from you know Aston Villa, and I do believe that that's a luck thing because I don't know. I don't think any other refs going to really card Jack for the uh, for the supposed dive there. If I, you know, I don't know. It's just it's. It's really disappointing that that's the way that the cookie crumbled, but ultimately that's what it is. You know, we came away from Selhurst Park, you know, 1-0. We lost the game. We didn't play well. And, you know, we got a little bit of an international break here. Hopefully, you know, this is coming at the right time for Villa to clean up some things up and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Because West Ham's not going to be a not going to be a soft opponent coming off the international break at all. Yeah, for sure. And we'll dig a, we'll dig a little deeper into the international break for one specific reason in a moment. But... Earlier this week, you wrote an article on underagasitlamp.com about Neil Taylor and uh, how the fullback should be given a bit more respect in terms of what he brings to the team, albeit not in an attacking sense. Um, Taylor averaged around six passes into the final third of the pitch per game last season in the Championship, but now we're in the Premier League, he's making around two per game. I think he made two uh, passes into the final third against Crystal Palace. Um, but defensively in the Premier League, Taylor has been as steady as they come. Yeah, I I wrote about it. And I, for the most part, I got very positive feedback, and people agree with me that he, you know, there should be a little bit more respect, you know, given to Neil Taylor. He was very solid for us in the championship, and I don't, I'm not saying, I'm not going to sit here and say that a 30 year old fullback with uh, Taylor's capabilities is the way forward for Aston Villa. I just think that he just needs to be respected and appreciated just a little bit more for what he does bring. And of course, you see all these other modern fullbacks. You can go on under gaslit doc, you know, under gaslitlamp.com and read the article. But I, I talk about how there are younger fullbacks that, you know, Villa supporters will see out in other teams and be like, man, I really wish we had a fullback like that. Instead, we've got Neil Taylor. And of course, he's not, he's not the prototypical modern day fullback. He doesn't have incredible amounts of pace. He doesn't look forward. He more passes forward. Obviously, about the stat you just said, passes into the final third of the pitch. So I think Neil Taylor's doing his job for Aston Villa, and I think he has for a while. He was the left back through the, you know, the historic winning run we had last season, and the whole not, you know, everything about that. And then coming up, he's been solid, and he's going to face a lot of, you know, opposition this season that are elite. We're not just talking elite for the Premier League; we're talking worldwide elite players. So I think he's doing a great job, even though it's only through four games. I'm glad he's here. I'm, I'm glad that most of the fan base was in agreement with, with us and our, our stance about Neil Taylor, because I, I know you really like him as well, Regan. Yeah, and I mean, I don't think he, you know, not, not a lot of people thought he had a place in this new era, Aston Villa. Um, but, you know, he, he's holding his own, and, you know, he's he's literally all we've got until Matt Target comes good, basically. Um, and obviously he bit to put injury in the Carabao Cup, um, but he defensively he he's really quite up there um, in in terms of the Aston Villa defence. You know he's he's performing on a similar level to, as as Tyra Mings and Bjorn Engels, and they've been receiving plaudit after plaudit after plaudit. 
Yeah, and I, I think Taylor should be, you know, in the discussion of being just as important to the supporters as a Mings, as an Angles. I mean, he, again, he's not going to be everybody's cup of tea because everybody sees other modern-day fullbacks and top, top teams and think that that's, like, exactly what every team's fullback should look like. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, I think Neil Taylor's going to have a solid season. The thing that does it for me with Neil Taylor, I, th- I believe I touch on in the article, is his tactical know-how. And the way he blocks shots is really uh, unique as well. Like He doesn't mind giving up ground and kind of pacing back and letting a forward come at him, but he's going to block the cross. And that's something that you need. You can't have 11 players on the pitch that are all offensively minded, go, go, go all the time. You definitely need players within your squad and within your team that are going to be able to stand there defensively and know like, hey, I'm not going forward and this is why I'm not going forward. You know, you have to be aware of that kind of thing. And for me, Neil Taylor has that in buckets. And it, again, he's he's 30-year-old fullback in the Premier League. I think right now is probably, you know, the best of Neil Taylor that we're going to see. So I, I think I think he's fine. And it's, you know, it's really refreshing to see so many people agree. Yeah, definitely. Um, but let's, let's move on to the international break. Um, we, we've just been speaking about him, but... Aston Villa's very own Tyrone Mings has been called up to the England squad uh, for two Euro 2020 qualifiers against Bulgaria and Kosovo, um, alongside Tom Heaton. This is like a massive moment for Tyrone. You know, he's gone from homelessness to taking part in the in the national team for his country. You know, it, it's truly kind of like a feel good story that's made for the silver screen, I guess. And you know. Well, personally, I couldn't be happier for not only Tyrone as a Villa player, but Tyrone as a person. Um, you know, what do you think, Mark? I think the same exact thing. I'm absolutely elated for him. I uh, he I do feel he deserves it. You're going to get a lot of you know calls from other teams that th- maybe think their centre backs are more deserving of it. But what Tyrone Mings has shown, even through four games uh, in the Premier League, he he looks like he's exactly what Aston Villa paid that money for. Um, and Gareth Southgate said himself, you know, he didn't mind looking at players in the championship last season, but he wasn't going to give them the call up because he wanted to see how they perform against Premier League. So the manager of England, you know, decides, you know, three, through four games that Tyrone Mings is good enough and he wants to include him in his setup. Um, you know, maybe Mings doesn't get great playing time, you know, through these two Euro 2020 qualifiers, but it's still the fact that he's getting there, he's getting that experience, and that's going to make him hungrier to kick on. You know, that's going to click in his head. That's the personality of Tyrone Mings. We all know that's the personality of him. He's a great lad. Uh, I mean, he's he's been through so much in his life, and for him to persevere, um, there's an interview going around now that he was in front of the media, and they asked him some questions, and he talks about, you know, I had aspirations at different parts of my life. When I was selling, you know, mortgages, I didn't think that I'd be in England because at that point in time, that, w- that wasn't my goals. As things transpire, you have to readjust your goals. That that's just says right there, you know how, how you know one of the, one of the very 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 many reasons Tyron Mings is Tyron Mings. He has a great head on his shoulders. He has a really good personality, and it, I mean it's it's so so refreshing and so proud to see Aston Villa players involved in an England setup. Yeah, I mean it's it's not happened since oh, the last the last play was Fabian Delph, and that was going on probably five five or six years ago now. Um, do you, do you think that Mings or Heaton will be a part of the setup going forward? Um, more probably more so Mings than Heaton because of Heaton's age. Yeah, I would say Mings more than Heaton. It's, it's just based on age, and is it isn't me, you know, having any kind of ageism or anything like that. I, I just believe it's one of those things where, I, I you know, Mings is six foot five, and he's he's a taller center back, and he's proven he can be mobile, but he he can also prove he can ping a ball forward. 
I think maybe there might be something about Gareth Southgate that really likes this player, and I do think there's a little bit of a percentage in Gareth Southgate's mind that he's Aston Villa as well. And I know a lot of people are like, that's kind of a BS you know, reason to pick somebody. I think it has a little bit to do with it. I really do. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that that a lot of player, well, a lot of fans from other teams are going to see why why he's so adored at uh, Villa Park with in, in in terms of Tyrone. You know, he's he's adored by by the Villa faithful, and I think a lot of England fans will will certainly uh, realise why we've held him in such high regard. Yeah, I think it's going to be obvious, especially if he gets any kind of meaningful playing time. Even if it's, you know, 30, 35 minutes, it can even be less than that. But just to get it on that pitch and to see him in the kit, you know, see him working with some of the best talent that England has to offer, that's a proud moment. I mean, I mean, what about for you? I mean, like personally, like as an Englishman, like that sense of national pride, is, is Tyron Mings a player that you can see at, like being an actual like big facet of the, of the England, you know, like like starting 11, like stock team? I mean, how, how does that, how do you feel about that? For me, I'm I'm generally not interested in qualifiers or um, friendlies for the for the national team. Um, I, I I'm more 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 of a club man, I suppose. Um, and the the international break gets on my nerves a little bit. But you know, when when it's time to support them in in tournaments, I, I am there. And you know, if I could see Tyrone Mings or any Aston Villa player representing England at a, at a, at a major tournament, you know, I'd I'd be bursting with pride. Um, but no, it, it is a great feat to have two Villa players back in the England squad, especially so early back into our return to the Premier League. Yeah, I was talking to a few Villa uh, supporters that have been supporting way way longer than me. We were just chatting back and forth about some stuff, and um, you know, they said that. It just it feels right that there's Villa players in in the England setup. It just it, it screams to yesteryear and it screams to you know it, you don't have to have a crazy amount of the players you know on the England team, but for them you know the, these two gentlemen I'm talking about are English born and bred, so they were just talking about just the the sense of pride that Villa is a you know one of the top top English teams, and even though we just got promoted, it means a lot, and that, that's that's pretty cool to see people I admire have that much pride even about even if it's Mings and Heaton that are relatively new Villa signings if you really really think about it. Yeah, for sure. But let's 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 step away from from Tyrone for the time being, um, because last night the Aston Villa's under twenty three team, referred to as the under twenty one team in in the essence of this trophy, uh, played against Salford City in the Lee Sincom Cup, um, and they lost two 0 to uh, the Salford side, which are currently sitting sixteenth in League Two. Um, we've got a match report penned by Simon Lyons on underagaslitlamp.com. Um, and, you know, a couple of youngsters like Tyree Wright and Cameron Archer shine throughout, even in defeat. Um, Salford were held at bay until pretty late into the game. Um, and they were awarded a penalty, I think it was around the 70th minute, um, to make it 1 0. And then about a minute later, Adam Rooney poked the ball past Villa keeper Jamie Searle to make it 2-0. Um, but Searle really stood out and, you know, he fills his goal. Um, it commands his area well, but it was just a shame that, that, that the youngsters couldn't hold on. Yeah, I guess it was one of those cases where if it's going to fall apart for you, it's going to fall apart all at once. You know, giving up two goals pretty much back to back, it's never going to be easy for any team, especially for a youth team playing against you know side of Salford City, who's had some pretty major investment for where they're at in the uh, the EFL standing of tables. So I I don't know. I mean, I'd like to see 
a, a little bit um a little bit more from the, from the U setup. We said on the previous podcast we let go of pretty much a bevy of players in the U setup. So now we're starting to sign um you know new players in, in different positions. I mean you were you know speaking of uh, Jamie Searle, you know he's a New Zealand keeper. You know he signed pretty much fairly recently, but you know as our you know guy Simon Lyons said for his report, he looked pretty well, and he was actually you know a player to actually look at throughout the entire game as being someone maybe promising that maybe able to be able to move through the youth academy a little bit. I mean, do, do you think that you know we talked about it last last podcast about the youth, and it may be a while, but I mean we got to start somewhere, and even though it's just the EFL trophy, like I'd like to see a little bit more out of our uh, our youth players. Well, yeah, they, they, I th- they've got, I think, one game left. They should have two, but uh, Barry was in, in their group. So they've all, obviously, with the um, expulsion from from the footballing leagues, have been uh, expelled from the, this cup as well. Um, so they're playing against Tranmere, and I believe they need to win that game to, to progress. I, I'm not sure whether it's the first uh, team only that progresses, or the top two. Um, or what the case might be in this three-team group, but they they have Tranmere next, um, and I'd I'd like to see them win against Tranmere, although it will be a very very tough test. Yeah, it's going to be a tough test coming up Tranmere, and that that the EFL Trophy, you know, this is how that's set up to where you get youth teams from higher, you know, that are in the higher tables and leagues of England down, you know, and then they'll take their youth set up and play teams maybe in the fourth, fifth division of, uh, of soccer, just as a cup competition. I had, I actually had a couple questions of that from the, uh, some of our American contingency that, uh, listens to the podcast and they messaged me like, why is our youth team playing Salford? Like I've seen the Salford story on Netflix. Like that seems like that's a little unfair. And I was like, well, it's not in really terms of being unfair as much as it's just being a competition. So it works out for everybody. But um, yeah, I mean, a game against Tranmere is not going to be you know, an easy test whatsoever either. So I'd, I'd hope to see him win. But then again, I'd like to see a little bit more spotlight just shown on, on, on the youth teams for Villa. It seems a little tough these days. Yeah, and I mean, the, the club aren't really doing much in terms of you know making people interested in them. You know they've they've recently moved from playing at the the, the Banksy Stadium uh, to playing at Bodymore Heath for home games or Villa Park for I think one or two, um, and their the reporting on the youth sides isn't great from the club. Um, so hopefully, you know, as we move forward in the future, the club can, you know, use some of their their strength in the media team and and get some reporting. Um, or at least you know update the website for for the youth the youth players. Yeah, I'm thinking that this might be a thing that they know they don't have a great academy right now, so they don't maybe think that it's not worth covering. But there are fans, there are supporters, there are you know content creators like us that kind of really yearn for that information, and we really really want to see it. And I know there's a lot of supporters that want to see that as well. You know, it's tough not having the kind of content that maybe. The, the supporters uh, can create or try to muster up together to, to put out there for other people to learn about the youth sides. So I'd like to see that more from the club. Hopefully that gets a little better moving forward. They have the resources to do it. There's definitely creative people within Villa and even outside of Villa that love the club with all their heart that would be able to contribute to something like that. So maybe, you know, in the future it, it'll get a little bit better. But for now, it just seems like they're a little disinterested. And for me, that's a little bit disheartening. Yeah, I agree. And that's probably all for the discussion this week, but we've got a couple of questions that have come down on Twitter. Um, The first one's from Wayne Brown, whose Twitter handle is at Spar Brown. 
Um, he says, got a question for you, chaps. I heard someone on the radio say that the Spurs Champions League final game was the biggest game in their history. So on that theme, what's Villa's biggest game uh, in history? Was it the playoff final, the European Cup? What are your thoughts? Um, I think, personally, it has to be the European Cup. You know, it's something that sets us apart from a load of teams. Um, but, for, you know, for for those fans that were born after it, it's going to be the playoff final. Because that's like the the first major thing that someone you know some fans have seen seen Villa win, um, and in terms of like the new era, the, the the hopeful return to to being a joint of English football again, it's going to be the playoff final. But no, personally for me, it is the European Cup. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I don't you know want to agree for the sake of just agreeing, but think about taking the European Cup away from Aston Villa. And just think about a world that that exists. That's that's something that Aston Villa supporters hang their head on, and they, sh- they should rightly hang their hat on. Um, it's it's one of the greatest things you can do as a footballing club, of course. So that's definitely something. I think that's the biggest one. But again, I agree with you in terms of the more recent supporters, the younger supporters. The playoff final is going to be up there, and, and now that's that's the level of you know they know what it feels like to have good times, and it hasn't always been like that at Aston Villa, especially since most, like I said, younger supporters have been alive and supporting the club. So yeah, for me, it's it's definitely all time European Cup and most recent. You know, just for the fact that you know Villa's starting to starting to have a really really big following, younger people. I mean, you know, there's there's different channels with younger creators and you know doing different kind of arts. It's it's a beautiful thing, and you know it's it's really it's really uplifting to see. So yeah, for me, it's the European Cup all time. You got to have that in there. Definitely, um, Andy J eighteen seventy four asked. With the amount of chances that we're conceding, do you think it would be better to play two holding midfielders, especially away from home? Um, personally, I don't think it would be better to play two holding midfielders. I think you're sacrificing too much of our dy- uh, dynamism if if we're, we're playing so defensively. And, you know, obviously we're, we were at home for this example, but look at how we we managed to break um, Everton down on the, the counter. And I think I think, you know, Perhaps if the wingers don't continue performing, we we move away from that style of the, the Dino's four three three. But I, I don't think it, it reverts to a a two holding midfielder formation at all. I I just don't think Dean Smith's going to do that. I don't, I don't think that's the plan for him. I I I just don't have the belief that he's going to change his system. Something he's talked about you know, so eloquently and, and, and in such depth about how he wants to do things and the areas of the pitch that he wants to be involved in. So I don't think you bring in two holding midfielders. Um, it, it might be like something, I mean, and I'm, I'm probably thinking in terms of, of the X's and the O's of the game a little bit too much, but maybe, I don't know, 75th minute, you're, you know, 2-1 up on Liverpool at Anfield. You know, maybe you pull the striker off to throw, you know, try to park the bus a little bit. Like, I can maybe see it there, but I don't, I don't see it as a starting... Uh, change of tactic to go forward. I I, I think that it's, it's just that, that's how it is for now. Yeah, I completely agree. And um, finally, Andrew Logan asked through the uh, the Pittsburgh Lions Club Facebook group, um, "What do you rate the overall overall performance of Trezeguet? Should he be in the starting eleven? Um, for me, he we haven't seen enough of him yet. You know, let's let's wait for ten games to have been played rather than four. You know he's he's shown enough to see that he can cause an issue for defenders, but he just needs to add that final little bit of you know a little bit of a spark, a little bit of spice, whatever you want to call it, to 
to, I, I, you know, it's the same with loads of new players. You know, the fans need to fall in love with him, and he'll repay that love. Yeah, I I don't think the performances of the new transfers in general have been bad. I think they're going to get better. I think they're adapting on so many different levels right now that, you know, eventually, you know, most of them will get it right. And let's, like, not try to pull wool over our eyes. There's going to be some of these signings that we make, not only this year, but going forward, that aren't going to pan out. And that's okay. Uh, In the case of Trezeguet, I think he definitely could have had a lot better game against Crystal Palace. I thought he was going to be a standout performer going into the game. I was incredibly optimistic about him, um, especially him uniquely. Um, But I wouldn't be surprised if he gets rotated out against West Ham, Um, not just because of his red card or his yellow card or anything like that. I just think that the different dynamic of, you know, an Algazi would might work there more than he will. But it's just my opinion. But I, I don't think he's been bad enough to lose his spot. Again, like you said, we're only four games in. Um, I'll start worrying about that kind of stuff 10 to 12 games in and see who's really, really taking their chance, you know, by the scruff of the neck and actually going out there and performing to a high standard. Well, he won't, he won't be available for selection against West Ham because he'll be, he'll be banned, won't he? Um, oh, that's right. He will be banned. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so it, we, we will be forced into an Al Ghazi appearance unless, obviously, we, we move away from the wingers. Don't you wish you still had Andre Green? <laughs> you, were, you, were ta- you were talking about being a little regretful. You were, ta- you were talking about at the beginning of the pod. You were talking about, you know, you might, might have been a little bit naive. I, I'm telling you, I, I, we talked about it on the podcast. I was very big on keeping Andre Green around, and look what's going on. <laughs> yeah, if you go back a couple of episodes, the grass ain't always greener. Um, and I think that's probably the best place to end this podcast. Uh, thank you so much to everyone who sent us questions in this week. And as always, thank you so much for your support. We're glad that you're enjoying the Gather in the Lamp podcast. Um, make sure that you leave us ratings, subscriptions, likes, etc., etc., on all the various podcast cha- channels that you might be listening to us on. Um, you know, it really helps us get out there and it helps our exposure. Um, as always, follow us on Twitter at Villa Lamp, on Facebook forward slash Under a Gaslit Lamp, on Instagram at Under a Gaslit Lamp. And um, yeah, generally keep an eye out for all of our all of our content over the international break. We'll be trying to release as much as we can in terms of articles, graphics, and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think there will be a podcast episode next week. I think we'll be taking a break because there won't be much to talk about. Um, but yeah, we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening, and up the villa. <laughs>